0: Total Soccer Show. My name is Taylor Rockwell and with me today is a gentleman who always lets me drink water regardless of the training session. It's Felipe Cardenas of The Athletic. Felipe, thank you for being here.
1: Oh, Taylor, what's up, man? Happy to be
0: back. Yeah, man. I know you've done a lot of media appearances. Uh, I'm assuming all of them will reference uh, hydration or drinking water at some point. Where are you in the Media Blitz tour right now? Uh,
1: just, I mean, just, I think I'm just getting started. I mean, it's been a, a busy week. It's been a busy month um, mm-hmm. for me personally, but it's been, it's been very productive. You know, I am always happy to, mm-hmm. to talk about soccer. I can probably do it all day nonstop. So, um, but no, I was on uh, Grant Wall's pod yesterday. That was good. That was really fun. Um, doing yours now. I'll be on extra time later this afternoon. I'll probably jump on the uh, five stripes final the dirty south soccer podcast those guys are fun joe patrick and, and sam jones um and i don't know whatever else comes up i'm trying to just manage
0: all right. Well, I appreciate you uh, you taking the time to chat with me and catch our listeners up on everything that's been going on, because we've been talking to you about the Copa. We talked a little bit about Mexico and the Gold Cup, and yet you have been covering Atlanta. And this has been a, a big story. Uh, can you take us through a sort of abbreviated timeline of things from Joseph not playing to the situation as it stands now?
1: Yeah, yeah. Um... You know, I think you know. I think we have to start with uh, you know Joseph getting called up to World Cup qualifiers in early June, I believe, with Venezuela. He he leaves for that. Um, It's important to note because he played. He he didn't start the first game against Bolivia. It was away in La Paz, and Venezuela lost that match. He played the second half, I think, thirty minutes. Um, You know, really didn't do much. But neither did Venezuela, in that matter. Then he started at home against Uruguay. And, and scored a goal. It was later called back due to a handball. Like he was, he brought down a long ball in his chest and it, it did get his arm as well. Um, but it was a well taken goal. And throughout, I think, the 70 or so minutes that he played against Uruguay, like he was one of Venezuela's most dangerous strikers. He was a handful for Uruguay. And so that's important to know because later, you know, he doesn't show up or I'm sorry, he gets called up to Copa America. He reportedly, and then he, you know, he later told us, you know, he went through an experience of COVID-19 despite being vaccinated. And so he was not able to play, um, with, uh, with Venezuela. He comes back to Atlanta and, and that's where this sort of starts. Like we don't see him in training. Uh, we don't hear from him. Uh, he's, he's not really listed really as like an injured player. And Gabriel Heinz mentions him kind of, subtly on July 6th as, as being as training on his own. And I think everyone, including myself, you know, assume that that was probably, probably related to fitness, but as, as it prolonged, you know, I, I just started to kind of dig and, 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 talk to people, talk to sources. And, uh, you know, I, the one thing, the, one of the first things that I found out was that he had been medically cleared to play, uh, shortly after returning from, from Copa America and Brazil. And, and so that raised alarms for me. And then, you know, Gabriel Heinze is just very blunt, very transparent. And so when I asked him about a week later, uh, if it was fitness related, he just so, sort of just like went out and said it. No, it's not. It's my decision. It has nothing to do with this fitness. So that led that that's when that kind of went out in the open that what, whatever was going down between, you know, a star player like Joseph Martinez and a new coach. And, and from there, the team continued to lose. They lose a game against the New England Revolution last Saturday, their eighth game without a win club record. Uh, They extended that last night against Cincinnati, another tie, but um, you know, it just didn't look good for the club. No one was really looking good. And in in this case for a coach, it's really hard for a coach to kind of win out when you single out one of the, you know, the franchise's most valuable players, uh, when the team is not winning. And so he was later let go, Gabriel Heinze. And since then, you know, if you've read my reporting and, and that of other, uh, journalists around the country, there are, you know, there are new details about some of the overtraining that was taking place, the grievances that have taken place. Uh, but still regardless, uh, a, a strange situation for Atlanta United to be back looking for their fourth, fourth coach in five years.
0: So when we've talked about him in the past, when we had you on uh, prior to the season beginning, I think we were both pretty optimistic about Atlanta United under Gabriel uh, Heinze. I thought it was going to be the smart hire. I, I think I backed like Joseph Martinez to win the golden boot and do a bunch of things. And it seemed like it was all going to work really well. And obviously it has not. But I think the thing that I remain confused by is that by all accounts it sounds like uh, Heinze didn't come in and then fundamentally change the way things were operating. He didn't demand a bunch of signings or or sort of deviate from what he said he was going to do. So I guess the big question for me is like was this always going to happen with him? Is this a situation in which maybe he went a step too far? It sounds like at his other clubs he has been this demanding. But it worked a little bit better, maybe because they were having victories, but it also feels like maybe it wasn't a sustainable long-term approach. So I guess all of that has me wondering sort of like, should we have seen this coming or do you think this was a just very strange one-off situation?
1: Probably a, a combination of both because I don't think anyone truly expected, oh, he's going to have he's going to fall out with a star player. He's going to sit. Yeah. And Joseph Martinez to train on his own, you know, 13 games into the season. But other than that, yeah, I agree. Like I applauded the hire more so for MLS than for Atlanta United. I, you know, I felt like he could really, really help Atlanta United, obviously, from a technical standpoint and in and, and, and culture building as well. Uh, My only, I think, concern or caveat when I started to report on Gabriel Heinsohn in Atlanta was that, you know, how does he manage kind of like the moment of this club right now, like a roster that has been deconstructed? Um, a team that needs that you know that's coming off firing their their previous coach that had a very bad 2020 that did not make the playoffs. Like there's a lot to fix. You know, it wasn't just insert a new coach and and let's watch this club skyrocket to the top. And so th- that that should be noted. Um, but I agree with you, and it's something that I've continued to write and, and report on is that Gabriel Heinze has has always had a history of being conflictive and controlling at these at the clubs he's worked at um, it, it's part of his methodology he gets through to players and he gets results now i think there's a very important cultural sort of um, factor here um, and it was something that i wrote in my last story about gabriel heinz about kind of like the the fallout and, and how atlanta united kind of ended up here and you know i i believe there was a bit of a disconnect with how he approaches training and, and the psychology of players and even his tactics and his day-to-day handling of players and, and just club staff, which is somewhat, uh, it's like a mixture of very old school South American and, and kind of traditional uh, my way or the highway sort of manager. And then just like American soccer culture, I feel like it did not blend well. And, you know, early on, I asked him questions about that. And I think he he was like, you know, I asked him like, are you, how do you view North American soccer? Like the culture here, how are you going to adapt? And it was, again, it was like five games into the season. Like, how was he going to answer that thoroughly? And that's what he would tell me. He's like, oh, listen, like I'm, I'm still learning. But I think that was part of this, this problem. It was a disconnect from that perspective, but it should not have been this, really obscene if you will because tata martino was here and he won a championship he had a full argentine staff so it's it, it cannot be just labeled a nationality thing you know because Atlanta united should have known how this coach was going to work how hindsight was going to work the sort of culture that he was going to try and, and implement the sort of demands that he was going to have on his players you know darren eels and carlos buccanegra on, on Sunday after, you know, in the press conference to announcing his dismissal, Heinz's dismissal, you know, they talked about the due diligence process that they went through, that they went down to Argentina and they talked to people. If they were talking to people in Argentina, yeah. I guarantee they were telling him this is how he works. He's difficult. He will get results. He's a good coach. He's you know technically capable, but FYI, these are the, these are the, the, the red flags. And I just believe that Atlanta United in the front office fully understood that but with their backs against the wall, having to find success immediately that, you know, they, they took that risk. And I think every hire is a risk. But in this case, you know, those those red flags were not truly hidden. You know, the, the staff yes. says that you don't know until a player, a coach is in the building. But I don't think it was it should not have been that surprising.
0: And it sounds, uh, you mentioned Tata there, it sounds like they are not dissimilar, necessarily, in that there's a, a demand for an intensity in training. I think Tata had similar issues with sort of not understanding... Uh, labor laws and how they had to give breaks and things like that. So it sounds like there was a similarity to approach. The difference, it seems, was that Tata was willing to adjust a little bit or change things or try to accommodate some player needs. It seems like Hintze was the opposite. And I guess I'm asking you, first off, is that kind of a fair distinction to draw? And secondly, not to make you his psychiatrist, but like if you are Darren Eels, if you are Carlos Bocanegra, and you have this manager who fundamentally is, it's my way or the highway, I know what I'm doing, I'm doing it the right way, doesn't that also communicate to you that, like, this person isn't going to compromise, and whereas Tata maybe would say, like, okay, fine, they can have a little bit of water, they can have this day off, fine. Like, he'd say it doesn't seem like was ever going to do that, and maybe that is where they could have known this was going to be contentious pretty quickly and maybe have prepared for that.
1: I mean, yes and no, because I think something that was so interesting that Gabriel Heinze said in his last press conference after the loss to New England last Saturday is when he was asked if you know if he had if he felt he had the the backing of the front office. He was like, "I don't need their backing. Like they've been with me this entire time. They've seen me work day to day. They know who I am and 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 what I do and how I work." And I thought that was really like an intentional sort of like, "Come on, guys! Like this this club, the people that hired me, the president." And the manager, as he recall, as he refers to, uh, to Carlos Bocanegra, the technical director, like they were very clear on how this was going to go and how his project was going to go. So, um, and and to your point, like they had gone through some of these like similar situations with Tata Martino, uh, and and were able to kind of course correct throughout the season. And and of course, like I've, I've written and reported, like it, it was different, a different, uh, roster as well, like veteran players, veteran players that understood um, just the way the kind of like the inner workings of the league and that were very involved in the CBA. So that was their way of of, of educating the staff. And then, you know, Martino had, um, uh, while he had a full Argentine staff, he also had a, a staff member by the name of Dario Sala, who ha- made a hundred appearances for FC Dallas in his career as a goalkeeper, understands American soccer you know, understood how to manage the players, how to kind of be Tata Martino's right-hand man and like go and talk to the players and find out where they were as far as training goes. And so so th- that was an important like addition to his staff. And I think that's why that that worked. You know, here, Heinz had brought his own staff. But again, I think this is where you have to start to look at the front office and particularly the technical director, Carlos Bucanegra, who, you know, he's his job is to kind of work hand in hand with the coach. And if you can't manage the coach, if you can't properly supervise what's happening, um, you, you know, some of these issues uh, eventually rub off on, on that person as well. And so, you know, the hiring manager, the supervisor here, Darren Niels and Carlos Bukenegro, they, you know, they had to have done a better job perhaps in, in managing the situation. But again, in the end, you know, Gabriel Heinso is the coach. He set the standard that he felt the club, needed to stick to Um, and in the end you know the results weren't there either
0: i'm sensing like a slight disconnect in the way this story has been covered or at least understood Then, because i think so much of it i mean in the introduction to this show was about how he wasn't letting the players have water and then you read it a little bit more and it's essentially he's trying to create game day scenarios when you won't be able to get water in opportune moments and you have to learn how to deal with it and i can see The logic there, I can just also see how too much of that, coupled with too many other things, creates these problems. But they don't seem like they're this sort of like, oh my gosh, I can't believe he was doing this. This is so ridiculous. Like it wasn't quite the... Texas football in the 1950s that like, I think that it's been made to be. So then that leads to like, so what was the kind of breaking point? Do you think if he didn't need the backing of the people ahead of him because they've been with him the whole time, was he surprised when suddenly, uh, he was no longer the coach? Like, like, did he see this coming? Do you think, or do you think this was a everybody's upset? The story's gotten out. We got to do something and we don't want to resign. So we're going to fire the coach.
1: I think it's a little of of everything, you know, but I, I think you're right. Like there are you can you can probably uh, you know, on the on the top of your head or name like five uh American sports stories about coaches, you know, going too far as far as there's how a, they-
0: there's a whole ESPN movie made about it when I was in college oh. about uh, I, it was Texas A and M, maybe, where they wanted to have like the most hardcore training season ever, and he ended up playing the season with like nine players because they had no one healthy because everybody was injured. Shades yeah. of that here, shades of that here. Yeah,
1: there are there are shades, and I, but but again, I feel like there are probably you know, I guess like worse examples of this. You know, like clearly there were a lot of injuries, and that that's that can't happen. You need to take care of your players. You need to have healthy players. You need to give them the rest that they need to be. Uh, you know, in tip top shape and to be professional soccer players, like they need rest, they need to be able to give their bodies, um, you know, that that sort of rest and relaxation, if you will, in between hard sessions. Now, again, I go back to the culture, because that's just not the way it works. in in South America, and especially in Argentina, there's just this very hardcore way of training. Um, you know, I remember last season, I believe it was Rossing, Rossing Club were worked like five nothing or something. And the next day the, the staff gave the players the day off and like the fans like went to the club and like protested because like they don't deserve a day off. They should be training. Um, and, and so th- there's this deep sort of cultural thing here. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I think it's tricky. You know, the, the Joseph Martinez situation was not good for Gabriel Heinz. It was, it, I don't believe he, he, you know, I don't know if he managed it that well, but in the end he managed it probably, if you ask him the way he would manage any player, no matter what the the last name on the Jersey is and how much they make and how popular he is. I don't think he, he I think he truly believes that it doesn't matter who that player is. Um, the problem is, you know, he chose a player to single out. And we, again, we don't know the full story and like exactly the conversations they had and exactly why Joseph Martinez other than, Difference in opinion between the coach and the player, why he was separated. But, you know, it was it was tough for him to get over that for hindsight. It's a player that drives a lot of fans to the stadium. um, Clearly a a very accomplished player in MLS, one of the top forwards in the history of this league uh, and a a player that the team needed to be, you know, need they needed him for his performances. And, And so I think that was an issue that the club had to deal with from the very top. Um, and you see that in sports all the time. You know, you, a star player and a coach don't get along. Sometimes you need an intermediary. And I think that's what happened with the front office here. But it, was that the nail, you know, in Heinze's coffin? Like, I think it was one of them. Um, but I don't believe, you know, if Heinz, if Eels and Bokanegger are saying it wasn't truly a performance-based dismissal, well, then perhaps, yeah, we don't really know exactly what kind of conversations they had. And if Heinze was surprised when it came down.
0: I think it's kind of revealing that when you were talking about Joseph Martinez, you said he drives a lot of fans to the stadium. And my understanding of of Martinez is such that I thought you meant that literally. And I was like, yeah, I could see him actually giving people rides to the stadium. So that does seem like the kind of the goodwill he he has created and the love he has created there. With that in mind, a couple of weeks ago, I think what you're reporting was indicating that this could be his last season. I'm guessing a lot of that was rooted in his dissatisfaction with the then-current state of Atlanta United. Now things have changed. Do you think he is happier? I saw him tweeting about how this is his home now. It seems like maybe he is more plugged into Atlanta uh, with Gabriel Heinze no longer around.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, my, my reporting d- certainly detailed the fact that Joseph Martinez was very frustrated and was questioning his future and had had a conversation with the front office, you know, saying that he was done after this year. Um, And I think it was rooted in, obviously, a a difficult relationship with a a new coach, um, a second consecutive coach. You know, Frank DeBoer, if you ask Frank DeBoer today about Joseph Martinez, when I when I got him for an exclusive after he was let go, you know, he had nothing but great things to say about Joseph Martinez, the player. Um, You know, he did want to let me know that, like, hey, he walked out of practices under Tata Martino as well. I had to handle that. I had to deal with that here. And so, you know, Joseph Martinez is, is a combative figure as well. You know, has a history of, of being extremely hard on his, on his teammates in training, uh, of wanting to, to win at all costs, um, and of having to, to manage his relationships with, with coaches. And I think here with Gabriel Heinz, it was another example. Um, and I don't think Joseph perhaps, uh, you know, saw the light. He's like, if this is where this club is going – um, you know, maybe I shouldn't be a part of it. You know, he had been frozen out by the manager. And so, you know, he told us, you know, he told reporters the other day that he, he seems committed. You know, he has a contract until 2023. Um, and he wants to retire here, et cetera, et cetera. But I don't think it's just a guarantee that, you know, he's, he's going to stay. And I, and again, it doesn't always depend on the player. You know, he, he, he still needs to perform. He needs to come back and, and, and be, become the player that he once was and, and start scoring goals. And, and and that that is what ultimately defines a professional's future at a club is how they perform.
0: For him to come back and perform, the team probably also needs to perform an earlier you mentioned that there's a lot to fix when it comes to Atlanta United, which seems like a strange thing to say on the surface because we're talking about a team that, from their expansion days, were competitive. They win uh, the title in what their second season. They've got a ton of uh, all stars. They've got a rabid fan base. They've got a great stadium. So, what like are the major things you think that are not? Presently working that need to be changed. Do people need to be let go? Do new, new people need to be brought in? Is it roster issues? What are sort of the primary things you think that need to be fixed or need to at least be addressed or examined in depth?
1: There, there needs to be a, a deep examination of the way that this club, as a as a as a soccer club, you know, what is their long term plan? Because in in the short term, they they've become a club that just was good for two and three years. And again, they only have five years of history. So you could argue, yeah, well, that's great. Three good years out of five. But in those five years, they've let go now two coaches. They have had, uh, according to my reporting, you know, difficult relationships within the front office and the coaching staffs and with players, uh, you know, mismanaged roster decisions, uh, a complete deconstruction of a championship side. That, you know, when at the time it seemed like, well, maybe MLS is just, it's difficult to ma- maintain rosters, keep everyone happy, give everyone raises. But, you know, if you look at the roster now, it continues to be a very expensive roster and it's not performing to the level that the 2017, 18 and 19 rosters did. And so I think that points to uh, upper management and Carlos Bocanegra and Darren Eels are under a lot of pressure. I think they 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 would be the first to acknowledge that. They know that they have to get... This next hire right they need they know that they need to establish a respectable ongoing succession plan from the coaching staff to the academy director to the players that are brought in the players that are bought and and develop, developed it just seems very random right now like who comes in who doesn't like the players that are signed there you know they there is no real culture or identity anymore in atlanta and again, I, I think identity gets thrown around a lot. Like, what is our identity? But um, Atlanta United had one. It was Tata Martino and the way that he wanted to play. And the players that were here, the stars that were here, the way they played, you know, the, the stadium, the, the the record sellouts, like that was all part of the identity. It was part of the culture. And that has started to slip. And so, you know, it when when a club is in that situation, in my opinion, it, it goes beyond what happens on, you know, during the 90 minutes of a, of a MLS match. Like you need to look internally and see what, what is working and what's, what's not working. And in any industry, you know, I wrote this in the last, you know, my, in my last piece in any industry, not just soccer, any industry, tech, public relations, um, you know, the food service industry, whatever it is like, you know, the hiring managers are, are responsible for the performances of those that they bring in for, of the employees and how they perform. And so now you've, you know, Darren Eels and Carlos have fired their last two coaches. Um, and, and that reflects on them. You know, that reflects on their decision making and, and how they vet candidates and the sort of due diligence process that they go, to, go through. And so, you know, once again, it did not work out with this coach. Now they're back, you know, in you know, midseason looking to hire. And, and that puts a lot of pressure on them to find the right hire but also to get to the playoffs. This is a team, like I said, an expensive roster that if they don't make the playoff two consecutive years, you know, I think that's, that, that's unacceptable for a club like Atlanta United.
0: I want to ask you about that hiring process or what comes next. But first, do you personally think that the Heinze Bielsa model is one that you can sort of build around long-term? Because it does seem with the intensity of the demands, it seems like one that players tend to burn out on and then you have to kind of bring in the more avuncular, joyous manager for a little bit of time, and then you can go back to the hardcore manager. Like, Do, do you think you can, if you're Atlanta United, set it up that we are going to have this intensity to training, this intensity to our approach, and that's going to be our identity? Or is that not a thing that's necessarily possible in the U.S.? Well,
1: first of all, Atlanta United is certainly not the only club that has ever been Find for for any sort of MLSPA grievance. I mean, this goes yeah. back to the early days of Atlanta, of I'm sorry of MLS. There are stories of other coaches. Like I've heard stories about Peter Novak in Chicago and Philadelphia. Uh, it, you know, it's something that happens. But at the same time, that's why there's a CBA. Like that's why the players have fought to uh, feel protected, to be protected, and to have these rules in place. But it's not like Atlanta United is just this like outlier that hires coaches that don't know how to manage that. You know, I think it just goes back to some some cultural issues that other teams have had to go through as well. And sometimes it's not just on the coaches. Sometimes there are players that don't mind the overtraining. They're, this is just – that's what yeah. they're used to. Um, but, you know, listen, I, I think uh, the, the model, the Bielsa model, you know, it's clearly debatable whether it's successful long-term. Of course, that should be debated. Uh, you know, just in Bielsa's history, he's had great success at Bilbao with Chile, uh, it did not go well at Marseille uh, for other reasons. Um, La- Lazio as well. Yeah, for other yeah, reasons. With Lazio as well. And, and a lot of that has to do with personality and, and just like poor relationship building within the club. And uh, But look at Leeds. I mean, Leeds is an, exa- is an example. Leeds United is an example of a club that said, we, we will commit to this way of working. We know it's going to be hard. We know it's going to be hard on the players. We understand we have a, a manager that is going to um, ask for a lot of decision-making power uh, but we were going to trust the process even in the down sort of times and they have they've committed to that and they've been successful within I think the the parameters of a club like Leeds United uh you know there's a report there's a story the other day out out of our you know out of the athletic UK Phil Hay you know one of our one of our great writers that covers Leeds United you know within the title of his last story it was like, the the commitment that Leeds United is making to be even better this year and one of them was triple training you know triple daily trainings like not two a days three a days so <laughs> it's like that's, they've that's gotten many, to that point that's too
0: many times it's
1: like they've gotten to the point where they're taking it to another level, and if you've seen, you know, the, the documentary films on, on on Leeds United, you understand what the players are going through. But they've bought in, they've had success, and that's that is the key to all of this is to find success. If you don't win games in this sort of style, like it's just going to tank really soon. And at Vela's, you know, he Gabriel Hens had one of the youngest teams in Argentina, which is key. You know, you need young legs, lots of you know, powerful lungs and, and a commitment to that style, a commitment to know that you need to sacrifice yourself a bit to play in the system. You know, Vellas was good, but they would also tail off a lot in the second half of games, you know, because they would run out of gas. Uh, but they, they, they had success within, you know, I guess the, the rebuild that that club was going through as well. They didn't win the league, but they finished third. They got to, you know, the, 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 U- the Europa league of South America, the Su- Copa Sudamericana lots of players were sold on from that club at Vela's that were developed under Gabriel Heinze. So it it just has to be the right fit. And I, and I do believe that, that there is a a little bit of a disconnect with American soccer culture and, and and that real hardcore sort of like approach to football that, that comes from South America. It can work. I mean, there's no doubt that it can work again. I keep going back. It's like it worked already in Atlanta. So to simply just punt away that sort of notion that it's impossible is is not is not accurate.
0: What do you think this means for uh, Hinte from here? Uh, Louis Van Gaal coming back to manage the Dutch national team mean, means he can't follow in Frank de Boer's footsteps and take that gig. Uh, right. But do you think it has negative ramifications for him? Do you think he goes back to Argentina? Where do you think he goes from here?
1: It's a it's a really good question, Taylor. Because I don't think anyone looks good right now in this situation at Atlanta United, and and that includes Gabriel Heinze. I don't, you know, th- clearly this was not his plan to 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 be let go thirteen games into his first yeah. MLS season. If uh, so, if it's
0: I, a great plan. He did really well to achieve that plan. If it were,
1: um, yeah, like no matter how I guess confident you are, you don't you don't want to be fired. No one wants nah. to be fired. No coach wants to be put in this position. I'm sure it was a very difficult conversation that Darren Niels, Carlos Bucanegra and Gabriel Heinze had. Uh, do not wish to be, you know, any of them in that situation. So, you know, I think it it it's a setback for Gabriel Heinze because I I believe, you know, he was he was set to succeed here. That was his plan and you know, I really think that he saw this job as one where it could be a bit of a trampoline for him as well. Uh, Like it had, like it was for Tata Martino and, and like it has for, for other coaches, you know, Jesse Marsh, you know, just now he's in Europe, he's doing great. Um, And so that now is, looks pretty difficult to accomplish. Now he's highly regarded in Argentina and South America. Uh, You know, he's like a cult figure in Argentina. I think he could go back and they would view this as like, well, that didn't work but we'll take you, you know, we, you know, he's that sort of, he has that sort of presence in Argentina and throughout South America. So, I mean, I think in the long run, he'll be fine, but this is a hit. This is a definite hit to his ego, to his resume, to his, um, to his standing as, as a young coach. Um, but I think he would probably say that these are things that you have to go through. He he would bring that up a lot in in his press conferences here in Atlanta when talking about like, sacrifice and 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 you know I've, I, that's what I've had to do in my career and um you know it hasn't been super easy for him either uh but this is not this is not something that will reflect uh positively on him right now
0: and final question for you, because I know you've got places to be uh you mentioned they need to make the right hire, you mentioned they also have a lot to work on and fix. What are some things you think? that could happen that would show you like concrete steps are being taken to improve the situation and does it require some big names to also head out the door or do you think they can keep the kind of front office personnel as they are, make some smart decisions and then things will improve.
1: Wow. I mean, that's, it's, I think it's a, it's a thorough question that requires a very thorough answer. And, Mm -hmm. um, you know, I think there's a lot of, on my part of, of, reporting and investigating to be done to find out what, what can, what needs to happen to, to fix that line United. But yeah, I mean, I think there, there are people that need to be held accountable. Um, And and that starts in the front office that starts with the owner, Arthur Blank, who, who is on top of all these decisions. I mean, let's not forget, let's not let just like Arthur Blank is around. He's aware he's, he's watching this play out. Um, And, and he has committed a lot of his, Capital to, to how this club is perceived as a brand, as a as, as a team, as as a as a mark in, in in sort of what MLS is moving forward. You have fans that are frustrated and that are demanding more accountability, more success because they're the ones that are paying a lot of money to go to these games and, and renew season tickets in a very very difficult time for everyone right now. And so there are a lot of frustrated people. Um, And then you have the players who I think throughout all this, uh, they've given everything, to be honest with you. I think Atlanta United's players have like sold their soul, have given everything on the field. But, you know, this league continues to improve. I think that was always my uh, my concern for Atlanta United. If I were within the walls of Atlanta United is that if you have a one bad year, you know, the, the rest of the teams are getting really, really good. And it's tough to just immediately rebuild. I think there are different opinions on that. Some people think, Oh, MLS like lets you rebuild quickly. Like I tend to disagree. I think you've got to have a project that's sustainable. And I think right now what Atlanta needs is consistency. It's so, it's just kind of like a cliche, but like they have one good game and then they have another bad game then they play decently and then they don't. And, and that, that just cannot continue if this club wants to be successful. Uh, And so the next coach, you know, who wants this job? You know, Taylor, like who wants this job? Like who wants to come into this situation um, and and take it? And I think that's going to you're going to see Frank Devore, <laughs> whoever comes in. Like it, it, there's there has to be a plan in place. It's like either you bring in a coach, you're like it's this is your club now, or you bring someone in to steady the ship and and work towards perhaps a more concrete plan at the end of the season. But whatever happens at the end of the season, I think people will be seriously held accountable for. And it's the only way for a club to get better is when, I mean, I, th- perhaps the word consequences is too hard, but like there does need to be like, you know, a reflection and, and introspection of like how Atlanta United wants to be perceived. And, and so far, like a lot of the decisions just have not worked out.
0: That was a very excellent and comprehensive answer, but uh, I am going to take away from that that you think Ronald the Boer should be hired. Since you didn't respond to Frank, I'm going to assume you're okay with Ronald.
1: Why not? You know, like I'm sure he will. I think he's happy on TV, though. He's happy on
0: TV. Fine, fine. All right, Felipe, well, thank you so much. Uh, I know you're on to your next uh, sort of media day blitz, but I appreciate your taking the time. It is always a good time chatting with you.
1: Anytime, Taylor. I always love coming on and, and talk to you soon, dude. All right,
0: buddy. Thanks.